Good morning. If I've not met you, my name is Fritz. I would love to meet you before you leave. Um, you can turn in your Bibles, if you have one, or on your phone or tablet to uh, John chapter 11. If you have a smartphone, uh, you have what's called a screensaver, and you probably uh, have a picture. Maybe it's of your family or a mountain, some special place that you have been. Well, you can imagine that my wife and I have a similar screensaver. Um, we have a new granddaughter named Charlie. And so every time I open up my phone, I see this beautiful, chunky, smiley face just looking at me. And it's glorious. Every time that we open the Bible, we should see the same face. And it is the face of Jesus. We have seen Jesus with our confusion. Anybody here confused? With our resentment. Anybody struggle with resentment with God and his ways and delays? And with our sadness. Anybody struggle with sadness and grief? Today, we're going to open that phone up. And by God's mercy and grace, we will see Jesus and our worst enemy, death. We have been moving toward there because Jesus has been moving toward there. Read with me, if you will. John chapter 11, verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I know I get the privilege of proclaiming the gospel this morning, but even just reading it, God, we are reminded very quickly of the good news that is bound up in Christ, unbinding us from his and all our enemies. Would you give me the grace not to mess this up, that your people could hear, and those who are not yet your people would hear and have faith for the first time. Unto your glory and honor, 
We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So yesterday, if you were able to get to the men's breakfast, we had about six different tables of guys that were there. And one of the questions that I asked to begin our devotional time was, what did you talk about at your table? And here were some of the answers that men talked about over breakfast. One table talked about the movie Top Gun. One table talked about work. One table talked about bears. And one table talked about dress shopping. You can guess which table that might have been if you are a member here. Well, I want to talk about bears for just a minute. I finished a book recently about a guy who tried to complete walking the Appalachian Trail and didn't make it, didn't succeed, but in his preparation for it, he read a book about how to fend off bears and all these encounters and experiences with bears. And this was the conclusion that the author came to about the best strategy for fending off a bear. There is no way to fend off a bear. That's it. If a bear wants you, he's going to get you. We are facing a bear this morning. And it's death. And what caused death? No matter how hard we try to improve our lives, improve our health, go about safety measures, there is always the looming threat of death. We talked a few weeks ago from Hebrews that the devil, whether you believe in him or not, there is a power out there, you should believe in him, there is a power out there that uses that sense of dying to hold you in lifelong slavery and you are responding to that in some way. Most of my secular friends do not believe in anything that happens after death, anything certain. So they are trying to fill their lives right now with every form of happiness that they can possibly get to. They don't care about retirement. They don't care about their future. They care about right now because death is looming over us and it is a bear. We cannot fend it off. But Jesus can. Today what we're going to see, Lord willing, is this immovable object called death being met by an irresistible force, Jesus. Jesus will exert his power over death, not just as some fantastic miracle, but as a sign to show that God ultimately sent him to fend off death and undo what caused it. Three points very simply this morning. The first is this, Jesus comes to the tomb. When I was, first, uh, when I was a young child, the first, one of the first times I had a sense that God was calling me to the ministry is I had this weird thing that I liked to go visit elderly people even when they were dying. And my parents were like, that's not normal. And I remember visiting Mr. Burnell Brown, my neighbor, 
uh, as he was dying in his bed. And it was not uncomfortable or weird at all. And that is what we see with Jesus. Jesus is not afraid of death. It is not uncomfortable at all for him to walk to this tomb. In fact, he has been on his way to meet death. He has been on his way to the tomb. If you remember, if you've been here, he's made a couple pit stops along the way. He has dealt with what Elisha called death in the pot, if you remember that story at all. But some of that death in the pot has been unbelief, it has been confusion, it has been resentment, it has been sadness, and he has moved toward that, if you remember. And now he is here moving toward the tomb. It was his intent all along. And once again, verse 38, we see the same phrase that was used in verse 33. He comes to the tomb with angry sadness, with sad anger, what we call last week intense grief. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again. Remember, internally, inside, he was troubled. He grieved inwardly. The word has like a, a sense of rebuke about it. He wants to rebuke something. And what he wants to rebuke is death. Some commentators think that he might be upset at the misunderstanding in verses 36 and 37 about who he was. Oh, he's just a nice person. He comforts us when we die. He's, he's sympathetic or he should just come in the world and fix all our problems. That, that could be some of it. But likely, tying it back to the text before, he is troubled again by this sense of death and what caused death. Again, remember, like my wife told me a couple weeks ago, this is the second person of the Trinity. This is the second person who knew infinite, intimate, loving fellowship and goodness with the Father and the Holy Spirit eternally. And they decided to create a world to share that love and that joy with. To overflow with goodness to the creation. And then sin comes into the world. If you remember when God said to Adam and Eve that, that he walked in the garden in the cool of the day with them and had this perfect fellowship, no discomfort being in God's presence at all. That's what Jesus remembers and then God warned Adam and Eve, there's only one prohibition, and if you eat of that tree, you will die, die. We've said that before in this church. In the Hebrew, God is emphasizing there is death attached to this. So Jesus knew what it was like before sin brought the curse of death into the world. That grieved him. And look at the barriers that John shows us that are in his way. Deeply moved again, he came to a tomb. Again, we don't like going to tombs. As Murray brought out a few weeks ago with what we call Gary the Naked Man in Mark 5. What do we do with crazy people that don't keep their clothes on and cut themselves? We put them in the tombs away from society so we don't have to see it. We're we're, we're uncomfortable with that. Jesus is not. He came to the tomb. 
more barriers. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. If that's not enough, there's the barrier of death, right? The word dead or dying or death is repeated 11 times in this chapter. Do you see the barrier? And Jesus comes. Jesus, though we don't know what to do and we're uncomfortable with it, Jesus knows what to do with death. He comes straight to the tomb. He moves toward resentful people, angry people, sad people who are his children. And he moves toward dead people who are his children. Barriers will not stop him. Think of what we have seen so far in the Gospel of John. Jesus moves toward a man born blind. Jesus moves toward an invalid who had been an invalid for 38 years. Jesus in John 3, get this, moves toward a religious fundamentalist. And he offers him new birth. He moves toward a woman caught in adultery and immorality and offers her living water. I'm sorry, that's the Samaritan woman. Then he offers no condemnation to a woman caught in adultery. Jesus moves toward death and what causes it. About a month ago, I was driving to the office. I always come the same way. I go by the center goss down the street and I hang a left on Eastern. There's a little white castle there. You might know it. And normally on a pretty day, there is a man on the corner, not holding a sign. Those guys are there too sometimes. But this guy is drumming. You ever seen him? He's got a bunch of buckets. It looks like a cacophony of something, right? And every day I drive, and to be honest, I try not to make eye contact. Because it, it's a little hard, isn't it? And I don't really know what to do. Well, God has been stirring my heart through all of this. And we have lost three drummers. So one day I drove through and I went, you know what? If I believe this stuff, I need to stop. I don't need to ignore him. I don't need to look away. I don't need to throw him a little change. I need to stop. And so I drove in by the family dollar. I went over there, and he immediately looked up, and he smiled. And he said, hi, my name is Brian. He had sores all over his face, stuff coming out of his mouth. And he said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about this. I can, I can explain. I said, oh, that's fine, that's fine. He said, I'm not out here to panhandle. He said, I, don't, I know all the rules in Louisville. I'm, I'm trying to just get tips for my drumming. And then he sto started telling me a story about growing up in Shelbyville, Kentucky and going to Shelby High School. And I said, Brian, it's been a pleasure to meet you. And he said, thank you for stopping. And I thought, Jesus, thank you for kind of making me stop. See, we're confused, we're 
terrified of these things, but Jesus is not. Jesus moves right to the tombs of this world. If you are a Christian, do you know what has happened to you? The Bible says that you may have been as alive, exciting of a person, energetic, you might have won the Super Bowl, but before God, apart from Christ, you were spiritually dead. You were lifeless. You did not have a pulse. And God moved toward you. And you know what that means for you? You are not dead anymore. If you were in Christ, you have been raised to life in righteousness. You are not dead anymore. For some of you, like me, that have a melancholy bent, that is what you need to hear today. That is not the truest thing about you. You are alive in Christ. Do you know that Jesus said, and we will see this later, that this is a great miracle we're about to see. He said that when he leaves through his spirit indwelling his people, he will do greater things through you. The reason that many of you right now are moving toward death-like circumstances and people that are in death-like situations and walking into tombs, whether it is your family, your job, some sort of mercy situation that God has given you, you know what God can do because you are alive in Christ. Jesus comes to the tomb and so do we. Secondly, what does he do when he gets there? He commands and he prays. And the first thing, it's a command. It's, it's a crazy command. Look at verse 39. You can imagine this. You go to a funeral. You're sad. Everybody's there. And John walks down and he looks at the, the, the person lying there in the casket. And he says, Joe, get up. And everybody in the funeral home rushes at him to get him out of there, right? Because of the, of the widow that's there. And they rightly should because that's crazy. That's exactly what Martha thinks. Jesus says, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by now, this time there will be an odor. He's been in there four days. The old King James Version said it like this, Lord, it's been four days. He stinketh. All right, that was not enough laughter. Gosh. See, again, there's another barrier here, isn't there? Not just the stone and the tomb and all that. There's the unbelief in Martha. Remember, she had this traditional general understanding of the resurrection, much like we do. And she believed that Jesus is the Son of God who comes into the world, and yet she still is fuzzy. Her heart is being filled with a growing knowledge of who Jesus is, and part of her heart still stinketh. But notice, that does not disqualify you from being a Christian. That does not disqualify you from saying, I'm alive, even though part of me stinketh. 
or none of us could be here today. Well, what does Jesus do? Does he look at Martha and go, Martha, <laughs> like I do with my kids when the sixth time they don't get it? He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't admonish her. He doesn't say, no, Martha, come on. He reminds her. He reminds her of his promises. He reminds her of what he's already said. Verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Notice, notice the, the sequence here. There are times where Jesus does a miracle, a sign, so that we see it and it helps us believe, right? I will be lifted up and draw all men to myself. When they saw Jesus on the cross, the disciples had to begin to see something. But there are other times where Jesus looks at us and says, just believe and you will see. If you are struggling with becoming a Christian because you want more evidence, my guess is he's given you plenty already. But I would encourage you, like Jesus encourages Martha, believe and you will see. Blessed are those who do not see and believe. So there's the command. And look at verse 41, there's this strange prayer. When something in the Bible seems strange, admit it, okay? This is strange. They take away the stone, this part isn't, this is normal. Jesus lifts up his eyes and he prays. That's all normal. He says, Father, lifts his head up, all that. But there's something strange about the prayer. Look at verse 41. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He must have already prayed about Lazarus. We're not sure. It's just a general statement. Verse 42, it gets a little odd. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe. Now, a couple things about that real quick. One, I knew that you always hear me. He doesn't say, Father, I need you to raise Lazarus. None of that. And then the prayer, in a sense, is sort of self-referential, right? It, it, it's, it's, Murray used the word, not Facebook meta, but the slang word meta. If you don't know what it is, Google it later. But it just means like this sort of bringing attention to himself. And it, just listen again. I knew that you always hear me, but I just said this so they could, they could hear. What? But think about it for just a second. What he's doing here is he is praying to the Father with the intent of the people around hearing him and hearing the content of his prayer that they may, what? Believe. That may seem a little weird, but every week when we are here, an elder gets up and he prays to God for you and the world, right? Do you ever grow in your faith and your knowledge of God because of that prayer? Yes. So Jesus, what looks strange at first, has intent. And the intent, again, is that he wants us to believe. 
Martha, I want you to see. I want you to believe so that you may see. And here he's saying, I want you to hear that you may believe. And as we saw back in verse 15, Jesus wants two things with everything he's doing in our life. What were those two things? His glory, that cycle of glory, and your faith to grow. Remember, he rejoices to grow our faith. He is committed to grow our faith. Do you see all that God is doing in your life right now, especially the tombs in your life, as a means to growing your faith? He wants us to see God's glory, to hear and believe, for our faith to grow. The last thing under this point, why? Verse 42, the very last part of it. What is the intent behind this? Look at verse 42, the end of it. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe, believe what? That you, the Father, sent me, the Son. Notice what he wants us to believe. He wants us to believe that he is here because the Father sent him. The Father sent him. He wants us to see that behind this desire for God's glory and for our growth and his commitment to our, our faith being grown, his meeting us in our confusion and resentment and sadness and anger and all of those things, the reason he is sent is because God the Father sent him. Well, why did God the Father send Jesus? And I think behind that, if you dig down and you dig down, the intent behind it is one word, love. Could have guessed it, right? Love. Now, we all know how this works. You can send someone a nice card just to do it, because you should. And everybody can see through that. But if you get a meal you weren't expecting or flowers that you weren't expecting or as I told the men's group yesterday, this, this friend of a friend who dealt with severe depression, he realized the only way that he could remind him of his love was to send him postcards. So he sent him over 700 postcards. Why? He sent them to show that he loved him. Behind all of this glory and beauty of what we see is that the Father wants us to know one thing, that he loves you. For God so loved the world that he what? Sent. Jesus wants us to believe that we may see the glory of God and the glory of God is tied up with the love of God in sending Jesus. He wants us to see that he loves us. When I was young, I had a church that even though we didn't believe in Halloween, we had a haunted house that the church owned, and I'm still not sure how that worked. But every year they would set up this thing, and you would you'd go in, and there'd be like a casket and a fake guillotine and 
There was like, you know, spaghetti that was supposed to be somebody's brains or something. Ah, you know. Well, my buddy didn't know about it. And we made up this story that um, he didn't believe. You know, there was this house that was haunted out in the country. And he just needed to see it. And this guy was a big old guy. Played football, was going to play in college, just huge, tough guy. And I could not wait to get him out there because he didn't believe us. And I took him one day, and for some reason the back door was open, and I brought him inside, and I opened the door, and all of a sudden he saw this casket, and he saw the fake guillotine. Literally, it was like plywood. And he saw it, and he took off running. Silly story that I'm probably regretting telling. But what do you think God wants you to see? Now, even when you look at the law in the Bible, do you see the intent behind it? It's love. If we could actually perfectly fulfill the commandments, we would perfectly love one another. We wouldn't lie. We wouldn't cheat. We wouldn't steal. We would love our neighbor. The intent behind it is love. And the hardest thing, I think, for us to believe, because we do break the commandments, but even God uses the law in that way to show us his love because the first use of the law is that we can't keep it. And he sent someone who could because he loves us. And he gives us that new heart. But when we break it, our mind starts thinking, well, God must not love me anymore because I stinketh. But oh, he sent Jesus because he loved you. Finally, look what he does when he gets to the tomb. It's in this business of Jesus crying out, verses 43 and 44. We see that he cries, first of all, with a loud voice. I'm just going to kind of pick through this real quickly, but he cries out with a loud voice. One commentator translated it, he roars. The lion of the tribe of Judah roars. The children sang this morning about the real king of the jungle, right? Well, he's roaring. This is not a flare for the dramatic. This is more like a battle cry. Remember, this is Jesus who was sent to come into the world, the Messiah, the Son of God, to fight all of his enemies and our enemies. He has come to do battle. You need to hear him roar. What does he say? He calls someone by name. He calls a dead person by name. Lazarus. You know I found out what the name Lazarus actually means. God has helped. I would say that's an understatement. He cries out personally to Lazarus. And again, this is either crazy talk or the most true thing in the world. It depends on how it comes out. What does he cry out? Lazarus, come out. And we see that it's not crazy talk according to the Bible. Verse 44, the man who had died came out. Do you see what it is picturing there? It is picturing 
the powerful effect that Jesus' word has on a dead person. It's what theologians call effectual calling. Not effectual like affections, but e effectual calling. It is effective. You think there's no way that person could become a Christian. And if Jesus walks in that room and says, Fritz, get up. He will become a Christian. There's no way. If you'd have known me in college, you'd have said, no way. I won't even hang out with that guy and try to get to know him. He's way too far gone. How many of you have that testimony? Maybe some of you are bound in religious traditionalism and legalism and fundamentalism without Jesus. And you think there's no way. Yes, there is a way. Because Jesus' words are effectual. They're irresistible. They work. They create results. So the difference between me calling my dog, Mavis, get up. She just sits there. And my new son-in-law calling his dog, and he can even do it in German. And she pops right up and comes to him. See, one is not effective. But one is. An immovable object, death, meets the irresistible force of the Son of God. The line of the tribe of Judah roars, and death is no more. It has no more mastery over Lazarus for the time being. Do you have overwhelming unbelief, mountains of problems and things that you don't understand? Or maybe you think you could never become a Christian. It feels like an immovable object. Just wait till Jesus speaks. Finally, look at the result of all this. There's Lazarus coming out. But there's more work to be done, isn't there? Look at verse 44. The man who had died came out. His hands and his feet were bound with linen strips because they thought he was dead. And his face was wrapped with a cloth because they thought he was dead. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. See, he is still bound in stinky grave clothes. He is wrapped in them. He has been set free by Jesus, but finds himself entangled in this web of grave clothes. How does he get unwound? You. You and I. Look at what Jesus says. He calls to the people present, unbind him and let him go. This is the second time that Jesus has used people to participate in his work of redemption. He says, move that stone, they move it. Unbind that man, they start untangling the grave clothes. Commentators have a field day trying to explain how he got from there to the people that untangled him. And they all assume he had to do something like this. Right? You can imagine. I'm not trying to be funny. He's wrapped in grave clothes and he can't see. So it was a little bit wonky, right? Do you find things in your life that are a little bit wonky? And you need help from Christian brothers and sisters. One of the greatest Presbyterian problems that I have noticed in 
20-something years of being Presbyterian is we are the last denomination to personally admit vulnerability and that we need help. We need help. Have you ever got on Twitter and listened to our denomination? It would make you want to run. Don't. Stay. Stay here and let's change it. Let's go into those situations and unwrap some grave clothes. Because that's what Jesus does with us. Sorry, that was not in my notes. I hope that was from the Holy Spirit. We need one another, don't we? Some of the greatest joys that Murray and I get is to listen to you guys as you don't even know you're doing it. Maybe you're just helping uh, a new person to our country learn to drive. You know what you're doing? You're unwrapping grave clothes. You're taking a meal to someone. You're unwrapping grave clothes. You're listening to someone struggling with their teenagers and you've been through it and you try to give encouragement and prayer and a little advice. Maybe it's good advice, maybe it's not. But you're just trying to help unwrap grave clothes. One other quick application. You need to be patient with your unbelieving secular friends who grew up in the church. Because they got a lot of grave clothes wrapped around them. A lot of things that were done in the name of Jesus. They're going to take a while for you and loving patience to just kind of help unwrap. But that's what Jesus calls us to do. Why? Because it's a sign of what he came to do. To unravel sin and all its trappings and wrappings, death and everything tied to it. One Puritan author, we're about to close, I promise, but one Puritan author, author said this, Imagine if Jesus would not have said Lazarus, if he would have just gone to this area of tombs and said, get up, what's going to happen? Every dead person is going to get up. That's our future. Because the one who cried out to Lazarus also cried out on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I will die to defeat death so that my people will live. There is a day coming, isn't there, when all the wonky trappings and wrappings and the grave clothes will be gone. Remember what we've been saying. All the sad things will come untrue. The best is yet to come. Let me close with one Bible verse and one silly story. Isaiah 55, 12 says this. You, this is the people coming back from exile and being bound and, and sort of slavery. That's so much the story of God's people. And it was all pointing to this unbinding and this redemption and this freedom Jesus is bringing through his life and death. He says, you shall go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into singing and all of the trees of the field will clap their hands. Our future involves mountains and trees singing and dancing. Do you believe that? What do we do in the meantime? 
we believe, we continue to believe, we stumble, we walk a little wonky, and we help one another join that song and dance. I have always had a dream of dancing like they did in the original Footloose. You know the dance. It's awesome. And my daughter, who's getting married in August, said, Dad, I've got a dance for us. You know the Footloose dance? And my heart just started beating out of joy and out of terror. So for about an hour, we practiced the Footloose dance, and I thought I had it until the woman said, okay, now we're going to stop just going through the steps. We're going to do it to the song. And it's like, and I was like, and my daughter looked and said, Dad, I'll help you. I'll help you. That's what we're doing until he comes. Let's pray. God, we tell stories because you tell the greatest story of all, a great story of redemption and unbinding, and we know we need unbound. We know even as those born again, raised from the dead, that there are parts of us that still stinketh. Thank you that you do not rebuke us or uh, are harsh with us, but you are gentle and reminding us of your promises. And even with the mustard seed of faith we have, Lord, you do wonderful, amazing, powerful things. You are doing great things in the midst of this church and around the world, and we pray to your glory and the growing of our faith and the reaching of others, bringing them into this story, O oh God, that you would continue your kind, powerful, effectual work. In Christ's name, amen.